all creation praise creator. You and I have the privilege of praising our great God. And what a privilege it is. And we don't want to take it lightly. We don't want to just think of it as, oh, it's just the songs that we're singing before pastor comes up and preaches. There is so much more that goes into the worship of our great God and to the song service. It's not just about singing songs or filling time um, because, you know, I can fill time pretty easily. All right, um, I don't need to have songs before me just for that purpose, but that per- the songs are done for a purpose of reminding us that we uh, need to have our hearts ready for the worship of our great God, and then our hearts are in tune with what we're doing and what we're looking at in the pages of Scripture. Um, and so we want to be able to worship our great God through our, throughout our entire service. So the songs are part of worship, the preaching is part of worship, the giving, putting the offering in the box is part of uh, worship. Even, even the announcements are part of worshiping our great God and is our goal and our desire that it all be done for the glory and honor of the one who saved us, well, the one who made us, and the one who saved us. So this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians. Last week, our study in Ephesians, we saw that Paul was about to offer a prayer to God for the Ephesians, but then he kind of got sidetracked and he he went down on this rabbit trail, if you will. Um, perhaps he was thinking about his prayer and he, that he was going to offer and the Lord brought something else to his mind. Have you ever been praying and that happens? You've been just adoring God and, and thanking God for who he is and, and praising him for the attributes that make him the one true God. Uh, and then all of a sudden your mind starts to wander a little bit and you start thinking about and, and praying about something else and then God brings you back to where you were. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, I want you to understand that Paul didn't do anything wrong here. He's praising God. He's, he's, he's thanking God for all that God has accomplished through his son on the cross of Calvary. And as a result of Paul's rabbit trail last week, we learned some valuable information about the mystery around which the, his apostleship centered. The thing that he called it a mystery, but you and I have the privilege and the, and the ability to understand it because of the pages of Scripture. What he wrote here in Ephesians chapter 3 remind us that God had this plan in eternity past. It wasn't something that God said, oh, I better do something now that man sinned in the garden. No, God knew that man was going to sin in the garden. And God in eternity past had a plan that would redeem mankind. And that redemption didn't, wasn't just for the people of Israel. It included the Gentiles as well. And therein lies the mystery that Paul talks about here in Ephesians chapter 3. That somehow, in a very miraculous way, and we're seeing that miracle miracle more and more played out before our eyes this, this, uh, in our current day in which we live with this war that is going on right now between Israel and the Palestinians and, and, and Hamas and Hezbollah and those other, uh, those other entities that want to see Israel wiped off the face of the earth. How in the world are we going to secure peace in that region? I mean, it's been a very um, unpeaceful region over the course of history. All right. Um, we talk to people and people say, well, just give the land back to the Palestinians. And I'm not going to get political here, but they never had it to begin with. It's not theirs. God gave them that size of land that, and that whole piece of property. And, and um, 
Somebody asked, I can't remember where we were, it was, it was uh, men's breakfast. Somebody asked, what is the original size of the land of Israel uh, that they should be able to uh, enjoy and live in? It's huge. And, and so I passed around, if you want to see that, I'll show it to you at another point in time. I wasn't planning on saying this in my introduction, but nonetheless, here we are thinking about how a miracle has played out before us that God in his sovereignty, in his love, in his mercy, in his grace has made it possible for Jews and Gentiles to come together, to be in the same body, to love one another, and to be a blessing to one another, and to serve God together. How in the world does that happen? Well, it happened because Jesus left the throne of heaven, came to earth, went to the cross, died in our place, made it possible for there not to be Jew or Gentile, bond or free, but for us all to be one in Jesus Christ. That's the mystery, and we understand how great a mystery it is, because only the blood of Jesus Christ can bring bring peace between Jew and Gentile. So those things that have been revealed as this mystery were part of our message last week. There were things that God has made available to the Gentiles as part of the gospel message. Remember these truths. Here's one that if you forgot between last week and this week because you were so busy, let me just calm us down, slow us down, and point out to you this, that you and I are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Now we say, well, Jesus was a Jew. How can we be an heir? He was a Jew. But you know what? He broke down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile when he hung on that cross. We are fellow heirs. We who had no hope and were without God in this world have been now made to be heirs with Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, hallelujah, amen, and we'll add one to it. Thank you, Jesus. For what you did on the cross. Secondly, we're part of the same body. We've already talked about that. But you and I who are Gentiles, we who are aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, are no longer without a family. Jews and Gentiles that repent and trust Christ as their Lord and Savior are part of the same body. The body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ in which Christ is the head of. The division that had existed for so long is now removed by Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross of Calvary. And the the third one, the last one we're going to mention this morning, is that we are partakers of the promises of God. We who were strangers to those promises now have the hope that comes as a result of promises made by our great God. Some of those promises, are you ready for this? Do you have your seatbelt on? Here they are. Here's one of them. Eternal life. You and I have everlasting life through the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. The hope of the resurrection. You know, so many in this world think that when you die, you die. That's it. There's nothing else. No, my friends, there is so much more to it. When you die, you're going to one of two places. You're either going to hell because you never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, or you're going to hell. I mean, you're going to heaven. What a, what, a, what a stark difference, heaven or hell. And, and, and we have the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what? Here's something that maybe you've not thought about before. Everybody's going to be resurrected. Everybody's going to have a resurrection body. You say, what do you mean, pastor? Those who are resurrected and sent to hell, 
They're going to have a body that is going to withstand the torment and the torture and the pain and the suffering and the sorrow of being separated, not to mention the, the, the fire and the brimstone, but the, the, the fact that they will be separated from God forever, all of eternity, never more to be able to be reconciled to him. No more chances. That's one. But you and I, have the promise of being resurrected to life eternal in the very presence of the creator of the universe, the savior of mankind, the sovereign God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the hope. And when we say hope, it's not just a wish. I know that Keenan and his team were, and, and Evan were hoping and wishing that they were, would, would repeat again as champions of the Nipen League. And I know that Ben, when he goes to play on Friday night, is hoping that his team will win the championship. There's no guarantees. My friends, the hope that we have is a guarantee. It's not a wish. It's an absolute certainty that we will be resurrected to spend eternity in the presence of God. Here's another one. We're looking forward to it. The rapture of the church. The any moment appearing of Christ in the clouds where he catches his bride away and calls us home to heaven for all of eternity. Becoming the bride of Christ. Oh, what a special day that's going to be. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we're going to return with him as, the, as his bride and we're going to rule and reign with him in Jerusalem. Those are just a few of the promises that you and I have the privilege of partaking in. Now, I got to tell you, if that doesn't get you excited, then you probably aren't part of the family. And you need to do something about that. The only thing is you can't. Except the only thing you can do is to accept the gift that God has given, the gift that God has made available to you. You know what? Uh, we, I just this morning we were watching a little bit of the news, and there was this advertisement on the news or on the TV for that uh, that EKG reader that you can hook up to your phone. You can carry it in your wallet. You can plug it into your phone, uh, and you can put your two fingers on it, and it'll do a, a they say a medical grade EKG. If you're here this morning and what we just mentioned, the promises of God doesn't excite you and doesn't make you uh, look forward to what God has planned for you, you better check your spiritual heartbeat. You need a spiritual EKG. Because that's what, that's what it's all about, my friends. Being rightly related to the God of the universe. Knowing Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Well, Paul is now ready to offer this prayer on behalf of the Ephesians. So, let's pick up our text this morning in verse 14. Would you stand together and read with me Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. This first phrase is going to sound very familiar to you because he made this first phrase in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 before he went on his rabbit trail. But now he's picking it back up. And so read together with me verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Say it nice and loud. Amen. To God be the glory. What a great prayer for the children of God. Let's take a moment and pray to our Heavenly Father. Our great God in heaven, uh, we thank you so much for who you are. We've gathered here together this morning to worship you. We've worshipped you in song, and now, Father, after reading this passage of Scripture, it is very, very much aware to us, it is very clear to us why we worship you. The one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or even think to you, O God, belong the glory and the power and the dominion forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. You notice here that that phrase, for this reason. This is how Paul, as I said, started verse 1. Last week we reminded ourselves of chapter 2 and the reasons he was going to pray. But in his rabbit trail, he gives us even more reasons to pray. Look at verse 10. It says there in verse 10 that we might make known the manifold wisdom of God. That we might make known the manifold, the multifaceted wisdom of God. Since we're part of the body of Christ, we need to be telling those we meet how we became part of his body. In other words, we want to tell our story because our story can be duplicated in their lives. Then they'll have a story to tell of others, of what God has done in their lives and others and so on and so on. It's like a multiplication process. And the last reason Paul is going to pray is because he, is con- he has confident access to the Father. You and I have the same access that Paul had, and and like Paul took advantage of that access that he had into the throne room of grace, we can take advantage of that same access to talk to the same God, the one true God, the God, the creator of the universe. And we need to take advantage of this incredible opportunity of prayer. This morning you saw, and it's on your note page um, on the back of the bulletin, you saw the title of the message. The title of the message is Cry of My Heart. Okay? Now, back in the 90s, there was a song that captured that thought pretty well. Now, there's one thing about music in the 90s. It was, it was good music. It was, it was nice to listen to, um, but it was hard to sing. So I'm not going to suggest that we sing this song, but let me read the lyrics for you. It goes like this. It is the cry of my heart to follow you. And as I read this, I want you to understand that this is what Paul wants us to do this morning and with all of our lives, to have this as the cry of our hearts. It is the cry of my heart to follow you. It is the cry of my heart to be close to you. It is the cry of my heart to follow all the days of my life. Teach me your holy ways, O Lord, so that I can walk in your truth. Teach me your holy ways, O Lord, and make me wholly devoted to you. And then the chorus again, it is the cry of my heart to follow you. It is the cry of my heart to follow all the days of my life. Open my eyes so I can see the wonderful things that you do. You do wonderful things, God. Open my heart up more and more and make it wholly devoted to you. 
all of the days of my life, all of the days make me wholly devoted to you. It is the cry of my heart, O Lord, to follow you. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. Why should it be the cry of my heart? Why should it be the desire of my heart to fully and wholly follow after the one true God? Well, we find it here in verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3. So we first of all see Paul's readiness His readiness to pray in verses 14 and 15. And this is important for us to understand here. Paul talks about praying and how he prays, and then he gets into why he prays. But first of all, I want you to notice the posture for prayer. Paul says, I bow my knee to the God of the universe, to the creator, to the one who is in charge of all things. Paul offers this prayer for the Ephesian believers on bended knee. And I don't think that that's a metaphor. I think he literally was on bended knee when he was praying to God. Now, this is a familiar posture for prayer. Jesus himself knelt down to pray. If you look at, and you don't have to go there, but if you look at Luke 22, verse 41, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that Jesus himself got down on his knees, and he prayed before his crucifixion. He prayed to his father, and you know the words that he cried. Father, not my will, but yours be done. If it's possible, O God, let this cup pass from me. But your will, O God, my father, be done. Peter knelt to pray when he raised Tabitha from the dead in Acts chapter 9, verse 40. Paul knelt down to pray with the elders in Ephesus uh, in Acts chapter 20 before he left them to go on to his next place of ministry. His heart was heavy, his heart was sad because he was saying goodbye to those who he had teamed up with for three years. And now God was moving him to someplace different and as his heart was breaking and saying goodbye, he got down on his knees and he prayed for these men that God would use them to lead the churches in Ephesus in a, in a way that would bring honor and glory to his great God. Now, let me also be quick to say that kneeling is not the only posture for prayer. King Solomon, when he dedicated the, the temple, he offered the prayer of dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22. He stood and he raised his hands before God Almighty and he prayed dedicating the temple for the honor and the glory of God. Let me just go on my own little rabbit trail here for a minute. I remember when I first went to Bible college, I grew up in a very conservative church. You didn't raise your hands for anything unless you were seconding or at the business meeting said, all those in favor, raise your right hand. We did that. But in praise to God, uh uh-uh. And I remember sitting in discussion group with Doc Carter. Mark Willie told a, a story about Doc Carter during the conference. And by the way, all the messages, all the services are on our Facebook and YouTube page, so if you miss them, you can pick them up there anytime. Uh, Mark was telling a story about Doc Carter, but I was sitting in discipleship, or um, um, discussion group with Doc Carter. There was only about eight or nine of us. They were small groups. Um, and uh, I remember Doc Carter says, okay, we're going to pray. And his hands went up in the air, and I'm like, <gasps> This is Baptist Bible College. You can't do that. You can't put your hands up. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. There's nothing wrong with it. And if you want to do that while we're worshiping God, it's a biblical response from the people of God to do that. So don't think that just because our name is Calvary Baptist Church 
that you can't do that. And we're going to talk this morning, you get this, you listen, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning in a Baptist church. You're on dangerous ground, Pastor. You know what? The Holy Spirit is just as much a part of the triune Godhead as the Son and the Father are. So yes, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. But let's understand the ministries of the Holy Spirit. He has specific things laid out in the pages of Scripture that the Holy Spirit does. Don't get him involved in other things because he he doesn't want to be involved in those things. He knows exactly what his ministries are, and that's what he focuses on. Just like the Son and just like the Father, they're all three have specific ministries that they're involved in. So the posture for prayer, the the King, King Solomon, here's my rabbit trail, raised his hands. There's nothing wrong with it. There are some guidelines. Peter says, make sure your hands are pure. You've confessed, you're, you're up to date with, with your relationship with God and you're not living in sin because if you're raising your hands and you're living in sin, it's a mockery to God. So just some guidelines. But again, we, we don't have time to go too far down that rabbit trail. All right? So, um, P, uh, so the apostle, this King Solomon stood in prayer to his great God. Um, David sat when he prayed, thanking God for the incredible things that he did and saw God do in his life. First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 16. Jesus, again, in Gethsemane, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, tells us that he fell on his face before Almighty God, his Father, and he prayed. So posture and prayer can be significant, but what is more important is the fact that we pray, that you and I spend time in prayer. We can see Paul's attitude in this text and that, that, that prayer is important in the life of the believer. It, this is the second time in just three chapters that Paul prays for the Ephesians. Prayer is important, and that's why we as a church here dedicate time to praying for one another uh, in our services, for other churches, um, uh, and for uh, missionaries, all kinds of things that we pray for here in church. And sometimes I'll come here on Sunday morning, and I don't even plan to pray for a specific thing or uh, whatever's happening in our country at the time or in our world, and we stop and we spend a significant amount of prayer in those things, even though it's not planned as part of our service. Prayer is crucial in the life of a believer, and in the life of the church. And we must see that from the Apostle Paul. By bending his knee, Paul is showing humility and dependence on God to meet the needs of the Ephesian believers. We can't meet needs in our own strength. We need God's help to do that. So we see the posture for prayer. We also see the pattern for prayer. Notice here that Paul says, I bow my knee to who? To the Father. You see, when we pray, we pray to the Father. We see here who Paul addresses his prayer to. In fact, in this section, we see a very good pattern for prayer. Not only this prayer, but most prayer in the New Testament is addressed to the same entity of the Trinity, and that is to the Father. In fact, it would be difficult to find a place, a prayer that is not addressed to the Father in Scripture. So remember when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray? Master, teach us to pray. I mean, John's disciples, John taught his disciples to pray. Why, can you please teach us to pray? So what were Jesus' words? When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you and I pray, we don't pray to the Son. 
Jesus didn't say pray to me. He said pray to my Father. We don't pray to the Spirit. We pray to the Son. We pray to the Father. And that's how prayer is patterned for us in the pages of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. Again, we see Paul addressing his prayer to the Father. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Even when Paul is praying with thanksgiving, we see he addresses the Father. He goes to the Father. He prays to the Father, the, the head of the triune Godhead, if you will. And that's a good thing for us to get in the habit and to be in the habit of doing, praying to the Father. We so say, where does Jesus come into our prayer life? Well, we pray through Jesus Christ, through the Son of God. Paul adds a description about Jesus in verse 15. He says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Because of Christ's work on the cross of Calvary, we have a family relationship, and it's this family relationship that allows us access into the Father's throne room of grace. Let us come boldly into the throne room of God. Of the Father. It's this relationship that we have through Jesus Christ. And that's why the scripture tells us that there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. That's where our prayers go through. We pray through the Son to the Father. Both references we used earlier, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, among other New Testament references, tell us that we pray through the Son to the Father. And then we have here the triunity. Also, Paul brings it up here in chapter 3. Not only are the Father and the Son active in our prayer life, but so is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in verse 16, where it says that He is responsible for strengthening our inner man. Answered prayer goes a long way to strengthening us. Later on in this book, in chapter 6, Paul, verse 18, Paul is saying, Paul says, praying always with all prayer and supplication. How? In the Spirit. When we are praying, we are praying because the Holy Spirit lives in us and he is communicating through us the things that we need to talk to God about. And sometimes the Holy Spirit takes the prayers that we offer up and, and we can't even say the words. We don't even know to, where to go with the prayers that are on our heart, the burdens that are on our hearts. And the Holy Spirit takes those utterings, those groanings, and he takes them right into the presence of the Father on our behalf. Let me be quick to say that those groanings and those utterings, they're not some special, spiritual, goofy language, Okay? It's the, it's the concerns of our hearts that we don't really have the opportunity to formulate into words. The Holy Spirit takes those into the very throne room of God on our behalf. So we have this idea of prayer, but prayer is not a simple thing. Prayer is a very important thing, and prayer, it, 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 it consumes us sometimes. We're, we're, have you ever spent time in prayer, and when you said amen, you just were totally spent? Wow. But you know what? The Spirit then strengthens us, knowing that the God that we have just prayed to, our Father, through His Son and through His Spirit, is able to strengthen our inner man. Wow. Jude chapter 20, or Jude verse 20, also instructs us to pray in the Spirit. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, where Paul tells us that even when we do not know how to pray, that the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf. So Paul has laid out a good pattern for us here to follow. And some wonder about praying to Jesus. Uh, you know, I always encourage people to pray it to the Father in Jesus' name. You remember that when the disciples asked Jesus, 
What did he tell them? He said, pray to my Father who is in heaven. So we're, we're going to move on, but I want to spend some time talking about Paul's readiness to pray and how it is that you and I can follow the example and pray the way Paul did. Well, in verses 16 through 19, we see Paul's requests that are made while he is praying. Paul's going to ask God for three things here for the Ephesian believers, and I think that there are three things that anyone can ask God for, you and I included. It's important for us to see what Paul is praying for here. He's not praying for physical strength or healing, not to say that we can't pray for those things, but prayer here is for spiritual vitality and for continued growth of his loved ones, the Ephesian believers. We can pray this for ourselves, we can pray this for others, that God would give us spiritual vitality, a, a freshness in our spirit, and a desire to continue serving him. Paul prays for, specifically for this as we read verses 16 through 19, that we would be strengthened in the inner man by God's spirit. Paul includes two things that will help us be strengthened in the inner man. Understand this, if these things are not true about you, you have no hope of being strengthened in the inner man. Number one, that Christ dwelling in you. Specifically, he says this, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Remember what he said in chapter two, for by grace you have been saved, what's the next phrase? Through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. So you see, we are strengthened by Christ dwelling in us. That faith that God has given to us strengthens us. And that's why it's so important for us to keep focused. We talked about this last Sunday night in our study on, uh, on Hebrew history. What is faith about? Faith is believing that God is able to do what he says he will do. Every time we understand that God makes a promise, God makes a statement, he will keep it. He will carry it out. We are strengthened through the truth of God's promises. When God says he will do something, he will do it. So, how do we, how do we understand this Christ dwelling in us? Well, first of all, we need to allow Christ to have the throne of our heart. That strengthens the inner man. A fair question to ask would be, how do I let Christ have the throne of my heart? Well, I think Paul answers that question if we go back to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, Paul talks about how we let Christ have the throne of my heart. It says in verses 12 through 17, Colossians chapter 3, Therefore... As the elect of God, and you and I have been chosen by God, therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So the first thing is about getting dressed. Put on, that's, the, that's the, the analogy that Paul is using. Every time we wake up in the morning, we put on our clothes. It's something that we have to do. You know, we, we can't just go out the way we wake up in the morning because it wouldn't be too uh, impressive, let's put it that way. So we get ready for the day, right? We put on our clothes. If you sleep in pajamas, you take them off. Uh, you put on your clothes. You, you comb your hair and do whatever else you have to do with your hair. Maybe you have to wash it or take a shower. And then some put on makeup. Uh, and then you put on all your clothes you need to put on and you get ready for the day and you go out into the world. 
Paul says, before you go out into the world, put on these things. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Number two, he says, you bear with one another and you forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, okay, so more than putting on tender mercies, more than bearing with one another, more than forgiving one another, above all these things, Paul says, if you want Christ to rule on the throne of your heart or to dwell in your heart, you must do this. What is it? Well, he says, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God dwell in you richly. Sorry, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wow. That's how I let Christ dwell in my heart. Put on love. And when you put on love, you know what? The peace of God can rule in your hearts. I love that verse, maybe because I'm a baseball fan. That word rule, you know what it means? It means to umpire. Let the peace of God be the umpire in your life to determine what is right, what is wrong, what is safe, what is not, what is fair, what is foul. All of those things. That's what the peace of God can do in your heart. Remember, he says, that you were called in one body. In other words, that's a cry for unity. Let the church of Jesus Christ be unified. And what are we unified around? Dare I say it? You better believe it. We're unified around this book. We're not unified around traditions. We're not unified around preferences. We're unified and we must be unified around this book, the book that we call the Bible, the words of God. If we can't be, if, if there's people that don't want to believe the truth about the word of God, then we can't unify with them. We can't be one with them because this is the determining factor. This, my friends, is the ultimate empire because it came from God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All right? And so we let the peace of God rule in our hearts and we are unified in the body and one that we overlook sometimes, be thankful. Oh yes, we have the Thanksgiving on the calendar, right? It's coming up. Um, we're reminded on a yearly basis, at least once a year, to be thankful. But Paul's saying it should be a regular thing. We need to be thankful all the time. And then let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and sing songs I can tell you, I was greatly encouraged by the worship at our conference. And so many other people told me the same thing. Man, it was a blessing. And you know what? I'm greatly encouraged when we gather together on Sunday mornings and sing praises to our great God. And when we gather together at praise and prayer on the first Wednesday of every month to sing praise to our God. It's not about how good our voices sound. But it's about our lips speaking praise and singing praise to the one true God. And then he, he, he sums it all up in verse 17. Whatever! <laughs> that word has been so misused in our current day and age, hasn't it? What does whatever mean today? Ugh, I don't care what you do. Whatever! 
or somebody gets mad at you and you don't care that they're mad at you, whatever. Somebody's upset with you, somebody thinks you did something wrong and you don't, it doesn't matter to you, whatever. Paul says, whatever you do. In other words, you can say everything you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. So you and I, we need to let Christ dwell in us by allowing Christ to have the throne of our hearts. Here's another way that we let Christ dwell in us. By knowing, that, by knowing Christ more through the studying of the scriptures, the more we study scripture, the more the inner man is strengthened. If you want to know what the child of God should know, a study of the book of 1 John will be of great help to you. 1 John chapter 2, let me just share something briefly from the pen of the beloved disciple of Jesus. 1 John chapter 2 verse 3 says this, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know we are in him. He who abides in him ought to also walk just as he walked. So we allow the word of God to dwell in our hearts and we study the scriptures so that we might know how Jesus lived and how Jesus responded to the different circumstances that he faced in life. And then another way that we are, or another request that we see Paul listed here is the request that we delve deeper into the love of God. Paul put it this way, to be rooted and grounded in love. We're delving deep. We're letting the roots of our lives go deep into the love of God to understand the love of God. In the upper room, as they were having the Last Supper, just after Judas left the room to prepare for his betrayal of Jesus, and just before Jesus tells Peter of his coming denial, Jesus tried to ready his followers for his soon departure. And you know what he said? He said this, A new commandment I give to you. Anybody know what the new commandment is? That you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Wow. Love. And you know, sometimes we make little of love. And we kind of downplay that God is the God of love. And I understand that we need to teach the other aspects of who God is. He's just and he demands certain things of us. And that he's a jealous God. Those are all true. But we cannot make light and we should never make light of the love of God. What is the most famous, the most well-known verse in all of the Bible? For God so loved the world. And we know how he loved. He loved and it was demonstrated in that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. It would not perish. So the love of God, we need to delve deeper into this love of God. In his commandment on Ephesians, MacArthur says this, to be rooted and grounded in love requires being rooted and grounded in God. 
When we are saved, God's love is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us, Romans 5, 5. It is the Lord himself who directs our hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. MacArthur goes on to say, what is this love that we are talking about? The experience and working of love that Paul is talking about in this passage is not emotional or subjective. It is not nice feelings or warm sentiments that bring such comprehension, but the actual working of God's Spirit and God's Son in our lives to produce a love that is pure, sincere, selfless, and serving. Oh boy, that's a lot to ask, isn't it? That's why it's God working through us, loving others. We can't love others the way God would want us to love others in our own strength. It has to be through the Spirit and through the Son of God working in us to produce that kind of love. Well, Paul doesn't want us just to understand and to, to, to know about the dwelling and the delving deep into his love, but he wants us to comprehend the love of Christ. Paul's praying for something that is humanly impossible for us to comprehend, and that's the love of Christ. However, since we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and since saints before us have been able to comprehend his love, it's possible through the Spirit, there's that that part of the Godhead that Baptists don't always want to talk about, through the Spirit, we are able to understand Christ's love, but only through the Spirit. Paul wants us to concentrate on the word and have a desire to know it and study it. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand the word. But if we're not spending time in the word, we're not giving the Holy Spirit anything to work with. So first of all, you need to concentrate on the word and have a desire to study it so the Spirit can make it known to you. In Jeremiah 15, verse 16 We see the importance of the word of God. Jeremiah wrote this. He said, your words were found and I ate them. Talking about, Jeremiah was talking about the scroll that was found that was lost. Nobody had communication from God for a while. uh, And they found this scroll. And Jeremiah is so excited. He says, they were found and I ate them. Now, he didn't literally chomp, take a bite out of the scroll. Okay, you're not going to find anybody much more literal about God's word than I am. Okay, but when it, Jeremiah says, I ate them, that doesn't mean that he took a bite out of that scroll that they, that they discovered. It means that he internalized the word of God. He let the word of God show him how to do life. Okay, your words are found, I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Another Old Testament saint, a patriarch by the name of Job, wrote these things in Job chapter 23, verse 12. You remember the life of Job. It wasn't an easy one. It was a, one, it was a life that started out, we read in the Old Testament, how it was blessed of God. And then Satan got a, you know, wanted to test Job and, and see how faithful he would be to God. And so in Job chapter 23, verse 12, Job says this, I have treasured the words of his, God's mouth, more than my necessary food. God's word was so important to Job. At the deepest, darkest, most uh, difficult times in his life, where did he go? He didn't go to comfort food. He went to comfort words found in the pages of Scripture. I've treasured your words 
more than my necessary food. Psalm 1, verse 2, we know this psalm, right? Uh, David is writing, he's talking about uh, the things that are important in life. Psalm 1, verse 2, he says this, But his delight, the man who is a follower of God, the one who wants to grow in his relationship with God, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So the way we comprehend the love of God is by concentrating on the word of God and have a desire to know it and to study it. We find in the word of God a completeness. We don't want to just know what it says, but we want to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of it. Paul's praying that the believers will understand the fullness of Christ's love. He's not necessarily referring to different kinds of love. He's talking about the vastness of God's love. Paul has actually covered the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of this love. It's the complete picture of the love of God in Christ Jesus. So what is the breadth of God's love? Well, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, we see God's acceptance of the Gentiles and Jews equally in Christ shows the breadth of his love. God wants all people to understand and know about his love. We see the length of his love. It's found in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where we see that he chose us. God chose us before the foundation of the world. What did he choose us for? He chose us for salvation that will last throughout all of eternity. You can't get any longer than that. That is the length of the love of God. And then he talks about the height of God's love. Paul explained it when he reminded us in chapter 1, verse 3, that we, he blessed us with every spiritual blessings. Where? In the heavenly places in Christ. All the way up to the heavens. We say, we have people we know that say, I love you to the moon and back. You know what? The love of God goes further than that. It goes all the way up to the very dwelling place of God in the heavenlies. That's how much he loves us. And it's seen in that he sent his son all the way down from the heavenlies to die for our sins and then brought him back and he sat him down at the right hand of the throne as an acceptable sacrifice and a a well-pleasing sacrifice. And he's given us the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We can see the depth of of his love in chapter 2, where we see that God reaches down to the lowest levels of depravity to redeem those who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's how bad we were. But God reached all the way down, and he saved us. Brought us out of that miry pit, and he put our feet on solid ground, on the firm foundation of no one else than Jesus Christ. You see here that Paul, he's building to a climax. He started with our being strengthened in the inner man, which allows us to understand the love of Christ, which brings us to the next point where we can be consumed or to be filled with the fullness of God. Consumed with all of the love of God that we can understand through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, to be filled with the love of Christ was difficult enough to understand But how much more difficult is it to understand the fullness of God? The love of God is just one aspect. But now Paul says, you have the opportunity to be filled with the fullness of God. 
Here's a story that might help us understand what that means just a little bit. It's a true story. A guy by the name of J. J. Wilbur Chapman often told of the testimony of God's love by giving a certain man a man's illustration in one of his meetings. He said, I got off at the Pennsylvania depot as a tramp. This is this man's own testimony. I got off the Pennsylvania depot railroad uh, stop as a tramp, and for one year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder and said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? Throwing his arms around me, and with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I have found you. I've found you. You want a dime? Everything I have is yours. Think of it. I was a tramp. I stood begging on my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me all that he had. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That's incredible. True story. <laughs> you know what? That's the way God is. He wants us to have everything he has. He wants us to know him in the fullness of who he is. The fullness of God is encompassing all that he has. His love, his kindness, his patience, his power, his long-suffering, his wisdom, his mercy. And we could go on and on and on and on with this list of who God is. But Paul says, I'm praying for you to know the fullness of who God is. It's all been made available to us. Not only to know the fullness, but he says, to be filled up. With that fullness. This word filled up, it means to be completely engaged by it. If we say someone is full of compassion, their passions or compassions is what is controlling them. It's driving them. When Paul prays that we would be filled up with the fullness of God, he is praying that we would no longer be controlled by self, but that we would be controlled by God and His ways. Well, we're going to finish this morning, verses 20 and 21, by looking at the reverence of Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is full of reverence. You, you and I may be thinking, this is great stuff, but can God really do all of that in my life? Well, Paul thinks so, and we need to realize who this prayer is being offered to. Notice how verse 20 builds let me just read it for you one more time. Verse 20, it builds like this. Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and all, all times, forever and ever, amen. We see the greatness of Paul's God here in verses 20 and 21. The God that Paul is praying to, that's who we're looking at in verses 20 and 21. To him who is what? Who is able. We have to start there. God is able. We know a lot about our God. We don't know everything, but we know a lot. If we just talk about the omnis, he is what? He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. 
omnipotent. So in other words, he's everywhere present, he's all-knowing, and he is all-powerful. That's a pretty good start. He is able. Look at this. Paul goes on. He's able to do. You see, he's not just able, but he's willing to do what it takes. God is able to do. But he goes on. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly. God, our God can do great things. You remember as a kid talking about, oh, my dad does this, and, and no, my dad does this, and, and my dad does this, but you know what? My dad does... <laughs> we can't compare our dads to our great God. Our God is able to do exceeding things. He's able to do exceedingly abundant things. Our God is able to do anything he desires to do. He can do great things. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask. Or even think. Sometimes my kids will say, hey, Dad, do you think we could do this? Rachel's forever saying, hey, Dad, you think we can, you know, make this or do that? Or, or you know, I, I don't know. But we can try. I don't possess the powers of being able to do anything I want to do. But God does exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. <laughs> Rachel was having problems with her car. The oil light kept coming on. So I changed the oil, reset it. A couple days later, Dad, the light's back on. Okay. So I went down to the parts store and I bought an oil sending unit. And I changed the oil sending unit. Reset. A couple days later, Dad, the light's back on. Okay, so there's another part that we have to get. And I looked and looked and another company ordered the part and it never came and it never came. Dave knows which one it is. Um, and, and, and so I went to a different auto parts store. I said, I need this part right here. I showed him a picture. He says, he says what do you need it for? I said, well, the, the guy told me that that's another oil sending unit. Um, he said, no, it's not. I said, well, what does that part do that... The guy said, I need. He says, it does this. I said, it has nothing to do with oil? Nope. I said, uh. I said, well, I'm having a problem with my daughter's car. Oil light keeps coming on. He says, what kind of car is this? It's a Subaru. He said, take it to so-and-so, Boss Automotive. He's the Subaru guy in central New York. If, if it can be fixed, he'll fix it. Good to know. So I went home and I said, Rachel, this is beyond my ability. I, I can't fix it for you. I'm sorry, I just don't know how. I said, but I know somebody who can. So we took it to, funny thing is, it's the same, he used to come to church here. Not, I mean, to Awana here. It's uh, Mr. McBride's son. Amazing how God works. So we took the car there and he fixed it. No more oil light. Woo! Yes! In our, uh, in our minds, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask and think. And all we wanted to do was fix an oil light. Our God does so many amazing things in our lives. Exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we can even think for somebody to do, God is able. Do you see this progression from little to great? Paul reminds us that we indeed know and serve a great and powerful God. And because of that, Paul ends this chapter with praise to God. What does God deserve? Glory. 
He says it this this way, to him, to God, to Jesus Christ, to him be glory in the church. Right here, this body, to God be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, as you and I yield to Christ, we are filled up with the fullness of God. We become vessels that are completely usable in the Master's hands. And this is when God gets the glory that he so rightly deserves. You see, God is able, in fact, he's more than able, but it depends on you and I being willing to allow him to work in and through us We're giving him the opportunity to do marvelous things in our lives through us. Wow. And so we say, to God be the glory. As we conclude this morning, let's bow our heads and ask God if we are willing to let God answer the Apostle Paul's prayer in our lives. This first section of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 have been talking about the riches that are ours through Jesus Christ. It's truly mind-boggling to think about the things that are ours because of Christ. But even more than that, it's incredible for us to think about how much God wants to use us and can use us if we are willing to yield ourselves to him. He can use us to bring great glory to himself. But we must give him our lives in order for him to do that. With our eyes closed and our heads bowed, it will be a good time for us to take the opportunity to thank God quietly in our own heart and in our own mind, with our own words, for all that he has done for us. And then to ask him to help us to let him have full control in our lives and to be the vessel that he will use to bring glory to himself. You can also ask him to reveal those things in our lives that need to be changed and to ask him to help us start changing today. Don't say, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. I often talk to people who, I'm going to start coming back to church next Sunday or next month. If you don't start now, chances are you won't start. So if God reveals something in your heart today that you need to start changing, ask him to help you start doing it today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Wow, what a wonderful God you are. Amazing, awesome God who saved us who brought us into your family, who have given to us exceedingly great promises that are so much better than we could ever have in and of ourselves. Father, you are the God who can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or even think. Our wildest imaginations, you are able to capture them and to do them. We are mindful of the things that you said in the book of John, when you told us that we, John, your high priestly prayer, when you said we need to pray the things that you would pray for us. 
Father, we need to want the same things. And when we want those things, you are able to do them so much greater, so much better than we could ever hope for. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be your servants, that we would willingly serve you, that we would put other things on the back shelf to be able to serve you. No matter what it is that we like to do, when that comes up and gets in the way of serving you, we put that behind us and serve you first. We trust that you give us opportunities to serve you in front of others, not for our sake, not so that we get a pat on the back, but so that we'll have an opportunity to talk about you in front of others. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we ask that you help us to get lost in you, that you would be the priority in our lives. Father, thank you again for Jesus, who makes all of that possible. And yes, for your Holy Spirit as well, who you have placed within us. And when we are listening and allowing that Holy Spirit to work in our lives, we are being conformed in the image of your Son more and more. Father, we're thankful that your Spirit can take sometimes the things that we can't even say and bring them to you on our behalf. He intercedes for us. Father, thank you for all that you are. Help us to be on a quest to know and live in the fullness of our great God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.